To get the most out of this sermon this morning, it'd be helpful if you found your way, either physically if you have a Bible with you, some of you have your Bibles with you, take your device, um, get to Matthew chapter 5 today, and if not, here's, here's your, your assignment for the day, and you'll understand when I'm done today. I want to invite you to set aside time today to do a Bible study, do some scripture work to let God's word form and shape you and me today. The words of Jesus. When we read the words of Jesus, when we read the red letter words that we find maybe in your your translation of the Bible may have the words of Jesus in red, sometimes it's tempting to view the words of Jesus as um, inspirational. Or maybe we view them as aspirational. But then we wake up on Thursday morning or maybe Tuesday afternoon or we find ourselves in work or in family life or whatever and we go, well, there's the words of Jesus. They, they so inspired me when I heard them. But then there's real life, right? Now, now this is real life here. You know, we're struggling financially, or we're dealing with this problem at work, or, you know, look at what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, that's real life, and then it seems like the words of Jesus were left somewhere over there. It's tempting to view them that way, and the default becomes a disconnection between faith and the real world, that, that dichotomy, that dualism we spoke about a number of weeks ago now. But here's the challenge. Jesus does not allow us to live comfortably in that gospel gap. I I referred to that last week, this gospel gap, the gap between what I say I believe about the gospel and how I actually apply my life to the gospel. Jesus never lets us live there. So starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21... Jesus does something, this is what Dallas Willard says, this is how he puts it, Jesus plunges us immediately into the guts of human existence. It's the stuff of real life. He actually says it's the stuff of soap operas. When you start reading through some of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, he takes this concrete approach because his aim is to enable people to be good, not just to talk about it. His aim, the aim of Jesus, is to bridge the gap between what I say I believe about the gospel and actually applying the gospel to my life, applying my life to the gospel. So this morning, as we find ourselves on this journey, these 40 days, those there's 40 or 50 of you who are, who are devotionaling together with this devotional book, these 40 days... In this morning's text, the sermon's really uncomfortable. The text is uncomfortable. And often, I don't know about you, but we're tempted, I'm tempted, to skip the hard ones. It's, I, I like, the Lord is my shepherd. But because Jesus is grace and truth, even the words we hear today, There's grace and truth for all of us. This is the word of the Lord today. Matthew chapter 5, 
beginning with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So where do we start? Well, you know, when we come to this passage, we need to start, first of all, with the obvious. And you start with what's obvious. The first way to read this passage is to read it exactly how it is written. In some ways, we want to cover our ears and go on singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. This is more uncomfortable in some ways than the conversation of the birds and the bees. But in our over-sexualized culture, particularly among the entertainment and market forces and influence in our world, this is an important and grace-filled word for us to hear. Let's understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is addressing men in his day who were viewed as religiously upright. They looked great on the outside. Outwardly, by all appearances, they were not adulterers. They were likely not. But Jesus is never interested in just the outside for any of us. So in this third Sunday of Lent, in this season of asking God to examine our hearts, we're not confronted with something, but rather we're invited to a biblical principle that resonates deeply with God's intention for our lives. And that principle is found in Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything. Guard your heart. Our text asks us this question. What am I allowing to shape who I am where no one else is looking? What or who do we allow to disciple us in our over-sexualized culture? That's a Lent question. That's a, a very practical question about guarding our hearts and the shaping of our minds. Every single one of us here today. Dr. James K. Smith is a theologian and a philosopher, and he's written a powerful book about this very thing. He reminds us we're all bombarded, my friends, we're all bombarded by images and, and by ideas that have the potential to, uh, to take our minds to a place we don't want them to go. Oh, images and ideas and understandings and philosophies and, and, and presentations that take us, that, that tempt our minds to go where they don't want to go. We all, to a certain degree, we, every one of us, buys into what Smith calls liturgies of the culture. 
Now, when we think of liturgy, we think of what? We think of worship. And he's very intentional about that. But liturgy is the idea of the practice of worship. It's practices. So the liturgies of the culture. And when he says that, he speaks of those practices and beliefs of a culture that we allow to shape us. Just think about the practices and the beliefs of the culture. I mean, I could list probably a hundred of them, right? I'm going to list a few in a moment. But think about the practices and the beliefs and the habits of the culture that shape you. Now, for someone over here, there may be a certain set of practices. For someone over here, there may be a certain set of beliefs. It may be different for all of us. But we all, at some point in time, have to come face to face with the liturgies of the culture that shape the way we think and what we do. And this is what he says about them. This is our challenge. He says, we fail to realize that these aren't just things we do, but these things do something to us. So these practices, these liturgies of the culture aren't just something that, that I just do day in and day out. These are things that do something to me. So that's really important to remember that. Now part of the liturgy of the culture is this. It's one of being people with perfect bodies or beautiful smiles or practicing a freedom from the consequences of sexual relationships. And frankly, it's the liturgy of the culture of a self-driven desire towards self-pleasure, pursuit of pleasure. And all of that, man, that all comes at us from every angle. It comes at us like a tidal wave at every turn in many respects. Here's the challenge. Smith says, and I believe him, believe, I agree with him. This is the title of his book, by the way. If you want to go get it, it'd be worth it. You are what you love. You are what you love. We want to say, as I think I am. I don't think that's accurate. As I love, I become. And as I love, that's what I think. You are what you love. We're, we're wired as human beings to be people who love, right? People who give devotion to. That's what we're made to be. So he, he makes the statement that I think needs to be at the heart of our understanding of these words for G, from Jesus. He says this, if I am what I love and my loves are aimed, oriented towards some version of the good life, okay, those liturgies of the culture, then the crucial question I need to ask myself is, how does my love get aimed and directed? How does my love get aimed and directed? So what do we do with this? What do we learn from this? Well, Jesus helps answer that question for us, except Jesus gets like radical on us, plucking eyes and cutting off hands. I mean, if you come next week and I'm here with a big sword, right? I mean, that's kind of like, okay, this is Jesus. What happened to our nice, inspirational Jesus? Does Jesus mean we are to actually pluck out our eyes and cut off our hands to prevent us from acting upon misplaced affections? You see, the hyperbole that Jesus is using is intended to show how futile that will be, how much of a waste of time that will be, 
Because what he's really doing is he's calling us to be serious about building a fence about what we allow to become the aim of our hearts. That's what he's talking about. He instructs us better elsewhere in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, slander, <laughs> arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Come from inside. So, what is the grace here? Well, Jesus is calling us to what has been the call of God to the people of God from the start, which is to anchor our hearts in God and his love for us. Now hear me, please, on this. It's not enough to get more information. We need formation. Actually, we need reformation of our minds and our hearts. This is about a transformed heart and mind. The message paraphrase of, of, of uh, Romans 12 is so helpful at this point. Just, let's just let these words settle upon us. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, the liturgies of the culture, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Embrace the fact that God's coming after you with His love. The best thing you could do for yourself. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. That is an instructive passage. Place your entire self before God as an offering, as an act of worship. See, ultimately, all of this comes down to worship. Let me just cite Dr. Smith one more time. He says this, We can't counter cultural liturgies with information poured into our intellects. We can't recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely informational measures. So the next great Bible study isn't going to change your heart. All the Bible study publishers, please do not send me bad things. Okay? Right? The next great uh, uh, program, I'm gonna, I'm, this, this next one, two, three, four, five step program for me to get better, for me to figure it out, is not going to work. The beginning place is not there. Look what he, he goes on to say this. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. And here it is. Learning to love God takes practice. And this brings new understanding to guarding our hearts by making room for God's influence. This is a matter of the heart, what we fix our focus on. 
Hebrews 12 has always been instructive to me, helpful to me. You know these words. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That, that, that idea of fixing our eyes literally has that, uh, that idea of changing our direction of our eyes, shifting from um, I'm looking over here, now I'm looking over here, making an intentional choice, practicing looking over here. That's what it is, fixing, not just fix, but fixing all the time. I'm practicing to move my eyes from here to there, my focus from here to there. It's that idea, and that's where recalibration of our hearts and minds begins. It's not going to happen by chance. I promise you, it's not going to happen by chance. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen if today, if this 60 minutes today, if these 35 minutes of this sermon are all your Bible intake is this week. I can promise you, you're not going to, you're not going to change. Your heart's not going to change. Every preacher would wish that their 35 minutes will change the world or change a heart. But it's a compilation of things. You, you see, it is intentionally allowing practices of the faith day in, day out, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, when you're excited by it, when you're bothered by it, when the Bible feels like it weighs 150 pounds and you can't pick it up to when you feel like it's the best thing you've ever read. Reading Scripture... Spending time in prayer, not, and what I mean by that is not formulating some great way to ask God to do what you want him to do, but spending time being with him. Last two Sundays, I've just been sitting in our prayer time, just sitting with God, just spending time with God. The best part of the day, in my mind, just to do that, not to even ask him of anything. So prayer, spending time with God, and yes, crying out to God, Cry out to God for Ukraine. Cry out to God for your family members. Cry out to God for the situation in your life. Yes, we heard that in Psalm 63 this morning. 62. Prayer, scripture, Christian community. This is, this is intended to be formational, not so much informational. This is intended not to be consumed. This is intended to be participated in informed and shaped by service to others. Not so I can chalk up, look how good I am, but there's something about that sacrifice of ourselves to another that forms Christ-likeness in us and our abandonment to God in worship of Him that intentionally shapes us. We were singing this morning, I looked over here and I saw someone with their hands like this, just for trying to worship God. What's that all about? Paul says in Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. So if you here today have found that place to being in relationship with Jesus, or maybe you haven't yet, here's the most important thing you need to know. It's about being raised with Christ. It's about new life in Jesus. So since then, this is speaking to those who've said, yes, I've, I, I, I want to follow Jesus. I am following Jesus. Since then you who have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on Christ above. It's not just inspirational thoughts. It's actually about Jesus Christ ruling. 
my life. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. It's about him being king of my life. That's the solution at its heart. What is the focus of your heart and mind? How are you practicing loving God? For it is love for and worship of God. It's the mind that stayed on God that shapes where our mind goes. I know you probably feel like I've left where I started, but I haven't. Because that's what it's actually about. So that's the obvious. You can call that the obvious personal or whatever. But then there's a greater overarching principle that this text brings to us. And every commentator on this passage of Scripture lands here. And that's, this is the greater principle. Those of you who are familiar with the, the um, theologian and scholar by the name of John Wesley from the 18th century, we find our theological heritage in, that, in, in his teachings and what he did in the movement in England. He said this. He said, all holiness is social holiness. All holiness is social holiness. Now that has been so misused and misquoted and mischaracterized in so many ways. But this is what it means. All holiness impacts people. All holiness has implications in relationships. All holiness, ultimately this, people are the primary beneficiaries of my holiness. Think about that. So whatever it means for me to be holy, the first indicator as to whether or not I'm being holy is how I'm treating people. It's how I'm treating people. I can talk about being Christian and holy all I want, but if I'm not treating people with Christ-likeness, I need to take a step back. Because ultimately, all holiness is social holiness. Now that's a very important principle when we think about the words of Jesus. Consider again these words from Jesus. When Jesus spoke, speaks of lust, the language he is using is fuller and richer than just a sexual reference. It is that. I'm not minimizing that. And that's destructive in homes, in families, in cultures, and societies. But let's put these words into their fullest context. You see, the first level of this passage is dealing with when a man looks inappropriately at a woman. But then Jesus brings the conversation to all of us when he starts talking about plucking out eyes and cutting off arms, using that hyperbole to make his point. Now this is where you have to go back later today to make sure you check up on me and read your Bible, what it has to say. Because all of this section starts at verse 17 where Jesus says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He also goes on to say in verse 20 that our righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. So here's something we understand very quickly. This isn't just about people fulfilling the rules. This isn't some legalistic thing that we can measure up the culture against. That's not what this is about at all. He's calling us to the practice of faith, righteousness, that is not simply an information-based legalistic following of rules, but rather 
from the depths of our hearts, from the hearts we are to guard. And then what he does is he gives us six examples of what some call the extensions. Some have called them the antithesis, but that's not accurate because they're not. But rather the extensions of the law, the extensions actually of the Ten Commandments. And, and if you wanted to today, go to Exodus chapter 20, uh, and you can see, go to the last six of the uh, Ten Commandments, and they'll align almost perfectly with what Jesus talks about in this next section. But what he does is says something over and over and over again. You have heard that it was said in the law, but I tell you this. And he goes on, starting at verse 21, to say a few things. First talks about murder. You're not supposed to murder. You've heard it said you're not supposed to murder. Then he says, he takes murder and he adds to murder the way we nurse and direct our anger and contempt at people. Especially with our words. Next, he gives instructions on how to divorce. Or we say, the, the law tells us how to divorce. Jesus, though, what he does is he tightens the marital bond. And he calls out the hypocrisy of the men of his day who would use divorce to disregard women. So in my case, if my wife came home and, and, or I came home and my wife had burned the dinner, I could make an excuse. I know that's very simplistic, but I could make an excuse to write my wife a certificate of divorcement. Jesus was blowing that out of the water. He, he talks about telling the truth and oath-taking. And what he does is, he, to the commandment against taking a false oath, Jesus speaks about being a truth-teller. To the famous eye for an eye, Jesus reverses the focus to self-sacrifice. And to the commandment about loving neighbor, Jesus does the unthinkable. He tells us we're to love our enemies. Now, what you need to see when you look through those last six commandments in the Ten Commandments and you look at what Jesus is saying in the rest of Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21, is that fundamentally these extensions impact the way we treat people, the way we live in our relationships. J.D. Walt wrote this week and he was very accurate. Our relationships are the mission. In her book, Fearing Bravely, Catherine McNeil wrote this recently. God's intent was not merely avoidance of murder, falsehood, and adultery. The law was given to form a faithful people who do not use and abuse each other. Now we get to the level of this text that we must get to. The term for lust or desire in some translations appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint in the last commandment of the Ten Commandments. The same words Jesus uses, Moses uses, we hear in Moses' recording, in the last commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So it, it really can be read this way. You shall not lust your neighbor's wife. You shall not lust on your neighbor's house or land. 
his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And as Amy Levine said, lust is a form of greed. The desire to possess what belongs to someone else. When a man commits lust against a woman, he is viewing the woman as a commodity, as an object of desire. And there it is. One of the fundamental liturgies of culture. The liturgy of commodification. What's commodification? The business people in the room know. Commodification refers to the process of converting human, social, or cultural value into market value. In other words, when it comes to people, making people an object of our consumption, using people for our own benefit. Recently, one of the men in our church mentioned to me the way his industry refers to people as human capital. Just a, another entry into the ledger sheet of profit margin. I understand some of that. I, I do. But you see, this text of ours that we want to kind of run away and plug our ears and, oh, no, I don't want to read that. This text is dealing with treating people like an object. Lust depersonalizes another person, making them an object of one's personal satisfaction. And anytime we do that, anytime we do that, we dehumanize them, and worse than that, we strip them of their intended worth and identity. What we strip them of is this. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we strip them of God's image and we make that person in our image based off of our desires, based off of our wants, and we use them. That's a lot on a Sunday morning, isn't it? That's a lot. But why does this matter? And I'm coming to the end. Snow and Ermakov comment this way. God has something to say about attitudes and behaviors that dehumanize the other. Jesus calls his hearers not to tolerate anything in their lives that would make room for the absence of love. Wow. Let that settle in on you as I'm trying to let it settle in on me. So if you're one of the 40 or 50 people that are reading through the book these 40 days, you read this this morning from Dr. Jaron Rowell. An authentically Christian person always puts the value and dignity of people above personal satisfaction. Wow. I, I hope you see what's happening we return again and again to the larger principle of the truly Christian life. Once you hear it, you're going to say again, you're going to say that again. We return to the framework, God's framework, his entire framework of what it means to act human. His entire framework for all human interaction. The entire passage we've looked at this morning folds itself into this. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's that first level of meaning. That's that, that's that focus piece. Lo- the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's that second deeper level of meaning. The expression of the first level in how we treat, treat people where we no longer treat them as commodities, where we no longer treat them as objects. And it all folds into that. It all returns back to that over and over and over. Well, we come to the end of the sermon. We've asked two questions, really. Where is the focus of my heart and mind? Where is it? What are, the, what are the cultural liturgies that I'm allowing to shape me? Everyone in here, we could all raise our hands and say that at some measure we get shaped by the cultural liturgies. We do. The practices, the beliefs, the understandings, the ideas, the philosophies of the world around us. Every one of us do. I'm raising my hand high because I know that I do. That's the first key is to recognize that we do. That's not just something I do, it's something that does something to me. That's number one. So we ask that question, where is the focus of my heart and mind? But secondly, am I treating people like objects or like image bearers? Am I treating people for my own self-pleasure? Or am I treating people as image bearers made in the image of God? Worship team is going to come. We're at the end of the message. But here's the good news. We're also at the beginning of perhaps a new place of grace in your life and mine. Did you hear what we sang today? That we have this God who's so radically committed to us that he keeps coming with his love, his grace, his goodness, his holiness. He keeps coming to us. You know, why, why is this in the Bible? Because, you know, Jesus doesn't want us just to talk about living a life for him. He wants to close the gap between what we say we believe and how we apply it to our lives. And he genuinely wants to change us. Now, I'm not going to do this, but if I asked you to raise your hand and say, do you need some place for Jesus to change you deep in your heart today? But I would tell you, I'd raise my hand and say, I do. I do need to be more aware of the cultural liturgies that drag me away sometimes in my head. I do. I do need to run back to this book. These pages, this paper, this leather, nothing, nothing, nothing divinely inspired about that. that that's going to just someday go into ground and probably just disintegrate. But we believe that this is the inspired word of God. This isn't God. But we believe this is the inspired word of God. 
whereby we read the Scripture, and it's not so much, as I've said before, that we um, apply the Bible to our lives, because that's still in my control. But rather, I apply my life to the Bible. Paul Andrew talks about bending, bending your life to Scripture. Sometimes I, it requires me to bend my life. That, and so that's the good news today. The good news is we come to the end of the message, but we come, we run right into the God who comes to us and says, I already know. And I have grace for you today and I have forgiveness for you today and I have cleansing for you today and I have a better way for you today. So I keep running to the scriptures so they form me. I keep running to prayer to say, oh God, I need you. I keep running to community to remember that I'm human and that I need one another. We need one another. I keep running to serve others so that I remember that it's, it's really not about me or you. I keep running to him. I keep running. And you know what? After a while, you keep running to him. You keep being formed and shaped by this liturgy, by the liturgies of the divine. You keep being shaped by that. You, you sing the songs we've been singing today, and you not only sing them on Sunday, you begin to let the truth get deep into you. And next thing you know, some of those cultural liturgies, you're going to be uncomfortable with them. And you're not going to want to participate in that. You're going to, you start thinking differently. You're going to catch yourself. Huh? Don't, don't go out there saying, oh, are you saying all of a sudden magically I'm, I'm never going to think bad thoughts again? I'm never going to lust or I'm never going to hate my neighbor again? No. We're going to be tempted. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our Savior calls us to this place setting our minds on him and him transforming us right at the very practices and habits and thinking of our lives. And for me, that makes this hard passage good news. And I say thanks be to God. And that's why we're going to close singing song we sang last week, Song Center. Because the answer isn't for me to be a more religious person. The answer isn't for me to, you know, check off my, my, good, my do good list. The answer is to be centered in Jesus. The answer isn't religion as much as being centered in a person who's alive. We're in Lent and we're heading to Easter and we celebrated Easter, he is risen. He's risen indeed. And did you know that during the course of Lent, every Sunday is actually still supposed to be a little bit of Easter? So today, the good news is, he's alive. He's with us. And every one of us here today, he knows exactly where you are and I am. So it's about centering on him Stand with me. Let's sing together. Let's make this our prayer.